Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. It's been an extraordinary few weeks in uh, US presidential politics, not least uh, President Trump's illness and his apparent uh, Lazarus-like recovery. Uh, meanwhile, it was the understudies who were in the hot seats of the vice presidential debate. It's a debate that normally um, fails to move the, uh, move the dial of, of voters. Uh, in 2016, only 36 million Vote, uh, only 36 million Americans um, tuned in for the vice presidential debate. This time, uh, figures suggest it was nearer 50 million. So uh, the the idea that that the next vice president is uh, also likely to be uh, um, the coming president with um, two presidential uh, candidates, both in their 70s, has clearly attracted more attention than normal. To discuss the vice presidential debate and what it means for the presidential race, I'm joined by Oliver Wiseman, US editor of The Critic magazine, and by Christopher Buzkirk, editor of the journal American Greatness. Welcome to you both. So... President Trump is about 9% behind in the opinion polls. Chris Buzkirk, something pretty extraordinary would have had to have happened in the vice presidential debate to really move the dial on that. Um, did anything happen which is really going to shift the debate? Yeah, well, I don't know if there's anything extraordinary. I mean, my view going into uh, the vice presidential debate was that it was a debate that had zero downside for the Trump campaign and the potential for sort of a marginal upside and my my uh, my take on it or my suspicion right now is that they got, probably did get that uh bump at the margin um vice president vice president pence committed uh yeah, acquitted himself quite well he was calm competent uh knowledgeable uh unfailingly polite as we would have expected from him in some ways was sort of the exact opposite of uh of uh, of the criticisms that president trump received after last week's uh, debate and so in that sense it sort of provided us uh, a bit of stability um, and for those uh, wavering sort of weak Trump voters or maybe people who haven't quite aren't quite sure I think that was I think he provided a sense of normalcy that was beneficial I don't think it changes uh, trajectory but it's sort of you know maybe maybe at the margin maybe for the edge cases it's a it's a positive well I wonder if he was almost too cool he was very cool calm and collected and I wonder if uh, that in a way played against him in his his courtesy led him not perhaps to land some punches that um, President Trump might have been tempted to plant. Well, I, I thought that actually um, both both of the vice presidential candidates kind of left quite a lot on the table last night. Um, one of the really frustrating things about about the debate is is yes, it was um, it was kind of much more substantive and and sort of in many ways more serious than than the presidential debate, um, but. I thought actually both Kamala Harris and Mike Pence um, and the moderator actually all kind of let one another off the hook uh, one too many times. And there were times where, um, you know, Harris could have done a better job of pinning Pence down when it came to defending the, the Trump presidency's hand, uh, Trump, Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus. And, and similarly, there were times where, where Pence didn't quite, um, you know, had kind of had Harris where, where he wanted her, but didn't quite, um, 
land a blow that he needed to, he, he perhaps could have could have landed and and kind of delivered that that kind of moment that that the Trump campaign probably needed from from last night. Um, that said, I would I would just like to sort of agree with Chris that I think broadly, you know, I think Pence came out of it pretty well. I think that he's a kind of underrated political communicator in national U.S. politics. He's he's uh, dismissed as kind of a boring figure, and that's that's true if you contrast him with Trump. But he's a you know he's an effective communicator. He spent a lot of time on on radio in the past, and he, and he know and he definitely sort of knows what he's doing. So I think many people watching might have been pleasantly surprised. Um, you know, sort of. Trump, uh, people thinking of voting for Trump might be so pleasantly su- surprised by that last night. Turning to the issues, um, Camilla Harris was trying to pin the uh, consequences of COVID very firmly on the Trump administration. She described it as the, the greatest failure in presidential history. Chris Buskirk, um, firstly, is that fair? And secondly, does anyone buy it? Uh, nobody buys it except people who are already deeply committed to, to Trump hatred. Um, and for those people, I, uh, I hope that there's adequate medication being produced. But, you know, this was, I feel like this was one of a number of times where, where Kamala Harris said things that just had no basis in history. Or maybe she's not familiar with, I don't know, 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. But to say that uh, COVID is the worst... Uh, disaster in presidential history is is moronic, um, and there's there's such an easy bat back for either Trump or Pence on that one, um, which all they have to say, and it's it's based in fact to say you know if you look at deaths uh, per capita, the the United States is better than Spain, about the same as the UK, and worse than Sweden. And Sweden is the country that's been pilloried for not having lockdowns. So is the argument that we should have just done that? I mean, it's, uh, there are, the numbers are out there. You just have to go on the New York Times website and you can easily bet that back. So that was a bit of a frustration um, for me, uh, particularly when you think about the fact that when Trump was talking, about, uh, uh, was talking about the virus in January and February and was uh, wanting to uh, bar flights from, uh, from China, that he was being criticized from the left uh, from doing that, uh, for doing that. And so, you know, look, we're, have mistakes been made? Yes, but not just in this country. Um, you know, in every country on the planet, people have had inadequate responses. And it's primarily because of institutional failure, uh, rather than did, rather than trying to pin it on any particular person with the benefit of, uh, of hindsight. Uh, Ollie Wiseman, how is COVID playing in in this um, election? Is there a view that actually the situation would be almost as bad if uh, if Biden had been president these last few years, or, or a, d- a Democrat at any rate had been president these last few years, or uh, really people's views on COVID is shaped by their politics, and uh, they they will find the facts to to fit that uh, to fit that view? Well, I think I think I mean. Look, it's obviously, yeah, as with anything in American politics, hugely polarized. Um, that's stating the obvious. But I, I, you know, I agree with Chris that there is a kind of, in terms of, you know, I'm, I've been critical of the Trump administration's handling, but, but I even will, will concede that there is a kind of parochialism to a lot of the criticisms in the sense that it's taken as a given that America has been uniquely bad in its response. And, and I think it's best the best way to think about COVID's, our failings, um, in relation to COVID is, is, is a sort of collective Western failure, right? I, I, do, I do agree with that, that there's not really a, a meaningful difference, uh, except for, um, you, know, you know, that's true when you talk about the, the number of deaths and so on, but, you know, there are, 
there are things that Trump does that um, even if they don't end it, end up with more Americans dead are not what you want from a president during a crisis. You know, a kind of manic, um, uh, medically dubious um, proclamations and, and, you know, telling people to drink bleach and claiming a miracle cure and, and, and so on. So I, I agree that, you know, it's, it's obviously too black and white to, 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 pin, to pin the whole thing on Trump. Um, that being said, in terms of how, how, how it goes down politically at the moment in America, you know, Trump, um, Trump's ratings on his handling of the coronavirus are very bad. And, and, and that cuts across, you know, that's not just anti-Trump obsessives. That, 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 that is um, the main reason he's losing this election. Yeah, let me let me just jump in on that. So we've done a bunch of state level polling over the past two or three weeks, and we found something really, really interesting. At least I think it's it's quite interesting and revealing. Um, and the, all of our state level polling has been battleground states, so it's been places like, you know, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida and Wisconsin and Minnesota and so forth. And one of the um, one of the questions that we ask is, uh, what is what you know? What are your top two? issues? What are the things that are going to motivate you uh, to vote for one candidate or another? And, you know, two of the issues, of course, one of them is sort of job slash economy, and the other one is COVID. And then there are, you know, the normal assortment of other issues, uh, education and healthcare and climate and so forth. And when you look at how this shakes out, um, for Democrats, uh, the number one issue is COVID. And it typically, depending on state, it runs around 60 to 65%. That is their number one issue. Jobs in the economy is usually number seven or eight uh, on their list. And it's the exact opposite. It's the mirror image for Republicans for whom COVID is either number seven or eight. Jobs or economy is number one. And so it, it is, uh, it's just interesting how different people uh, perceive COVID and the importance of COVID and the response to COVID, it is very much colored by, uh, I think, their general sort of political, cultural uh, worldview. And so when, you know, the, the Biden administration, or God forbid, but the Biden uh, <laughs> campaign has, um, uh, you know, sort of takes it as gospel that everybody is unbelievably concerned about this and that is the number one issue in their lives. And that is, uh, I think that's sort of the bubble mentality speaking, everybody they talk to. Uh, thinks that. But when we do this polling, you know, it's literally the second to last or last thing on Republicans list of the top eight issues. But, but Chris, the, the, the um, you know, I think it's a bit short-sighted to dismiss this as a bubble issue. I mean, if everyone's lives have been put on hold because of policies in response to COVID, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans have died, you know, it's not like this elite liberal obsession. And I, I just think on the, on the polling, it's important to sort of, I, I agree, I mean, you're right. It's, it's the, your polling and other polling suggests, you know, a, a very partisan split on, on priorities in this election. Um, but I also think it's kind of tricky to pass exact, the exact meaning of that, right? So like, if you're concerned, there are some people who are concerned about the economy who are probably very angry at Democrats who, who want to kind of keep the economy shut the whole time. Um, there are probably others who are angry at Trump because they feel like if he'd got a better grip on the virus, maybe the economy would be in better shape, right? So it's not clear to me that, you know, economy and COVID are sort of, are intimately connected. And, you know, I, I, it's not, it doesn't shake out in a neat way to me that 
um, that, that perhaps you, you suggest it does? The, um, look, I think that if you, if you think about the way Republicans uh, think about this issue, it is, uh, it, it, it's a sense of what's the capacity to control a virus. Um, there, there seems to be an implicit belief uh, for people, uh, sort of Democrats and people broadly speaking, aligned with the center left, that government power somehow was going to arrest the spread of this virus. And yet it hasn't really happened any place on the planet except in very small, highly competent states, New Zealand or Singapore, places like this. Uh, it hasn't happened any place in Western Europe. It hasn't happened any place else um, in Asia. And yes, I know that China says that they had the virus for like 20 minutes and then nobody ever got it again. I don't believe it. Um, but South America, you know, Central Europe, et cetera, nobody has the state capacity to arrest a virus like this. And so I think people who are sort of broadly center-right think, you know, we have to take this seriously, but that means, you know, isolating the people uh, who are most vulnerable, trying to work on therapies and vaccines and go about the rest of your life because there are unintended consequences that come with uh, these lockdowns like, you know, increases in suicide rates, increases in domestic abuse, you know, people being put out of work, all these sorts of things. And so it's a much more uh, balanced approach, whereas, whereas for people on the center left, it's oh, government was, government was definitely going to cure COVID in February if only Trump had not been president. And that's just, uh, I, I think that speaks to sort of the, the, the Trump uh, derangement syndrome. I mean, I, I, okay, let me let me just make one more okay, point, sure. and then I'll let you jump in. But sort of my running joke w w has been that if uh, that if that if Republicans wanted to open everything up, Trump would have issued an executive order mandating a ma mandating national mask wearing and mandating a shutdown because he would have had the New York Times and MSNBC and CNN opposed to him within about twenty minutes. Now, look, obviously Trump. There is a sort of orange man bad mentality, right, in lots of American media and politics. So if Trump says X, you know, you do the opposite. But but it's it's true. There's a coherent, um, compelling case for sort of skepticism about lockdowns and so on. But if we're talking about it, just to bring things back to the election briefly, you know, that to me is not. We haven't heard that case, especially compelling, put especially compellingly by the Trump campaign. You know, one of the interesting interesting things about last night was. Pence was, was, was quite good at that. And, and if anything, his, his arguments sort of made Trump's shortcomings more obvious. You know, there is a philosophical difference about how to handle this pandemic. There is a rep distinct Republican conservative answer, which has a lot going for it, but, but it just seems so far removed from, from, from Trump and, and, and from the way he's played this issue here, here in this campaign. Well, the debate wasn't all about COVID. It was uh, also, at least one of the segments was about the economy. Um, Mike Pence's line was very strong. It was that uh, whatever they claim in this election, uh, uh, Biden and Harris are going to put your taxes up and they're going to ban fracking. Um, the latter point, at least, uh, um, uh, Kamala Harris disputed. Uh, but fracking is obviously a very big issue, Chris Buzzcock, particularly in a state like Pennsylvania, which, uh, which is leaning towards Biden, but really Trump needs to win. Um, is this a, a major issue um, in this election? 
it, it, it is, I think you've identified it uh, correctly, Graham. It's sort of, it's one of those issues that is, you know, it's important to somebody like me who thinks about this. It is, but it's, um, but it is vitally important to people in Pennsylvania. It's very, in terms of the electoral impact it has, I think it's highly localized, but it also happens to be highly localized in at least one really important state, namely, uh, namely Pennsylvania, uh, to the extent that people are thinking about that issue in a way that uh, it will motivate them to vote one way or the other. You know, it's going to be in places like, uh, you know, for instance, Ohio, but Ohio is going to go for Trump anyway. Texas, Texas obviously is not in play. Uh, but when you think about what's going to happen in Western Pennsylvania, I mean, it is it is literally the case that the Western Pennsylvania could swing the state and the state could swing the election. And so that's why uh, so much attention paid to that last night. Uh, one thing that surprised me about Kamala Harris's uh, approach in the economic segment of the debate was her claim that the trade war with China had backfired, it had failed for America. I is that a line which is sensible for the Democrats to play, regardless of the facts of the matter? Doesn't it just make them look soft on Beijing? Well, you know, the, the Biden family took in $1.5 billion in investments from, from the Chinese. What would you expect uh, their surrogate to say? Well, I, you know, I think that, again, I would say that China is, if, if, we, were having, like, if we were having this conversation in March, right, um, one of the things we would be talking about would be the ways in which um, the Trump campaign, if it was going to make political capital out of COVID, would, would, would use it to sharpen um, their case against uh, not just the Democrats, but the, the political establishment more generally when it comes to China and, and kind of claim a conversion of a kind of vindication about, about the threat China posed to, to, the, to America and to the world. And that, again, as like with the lockdown thing, I feel like it has, the, 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 there's, there's votes in that and that's, that, that's a persuasive argument that they can be, could be making, but, 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 uh, but it, it hasn't sort of, they haven't kind of had the discipline and the, and the focus to do so. Ali, I could not agree with you more. This, is, this might be the single issue I'm most frustrated with because this is, it's an issue that plays directly to basically everything Donald Trump has said and done since 2015 about manufacturing, bringing jobs back. Uh, you know, he's the person mm -hmm. who, I, who really changed the debate in this country about trade and about China. There's so many things that, uh, that touch on this issue. And then we find out in February, March and April, uh, like, for instance, that we can't manufacture enough N95 masks and other types of, uh, of personal protective equipment in this country. Why? Because all the factories got exported to China. We find out that we don't manufacture uh, antibiotics in this country or even the precursor chemicals to them. They're all manufactured in China. We find out that Pfizer uh, moved their global headquarters for generic drug manufacturing to China. And these are all things that are, I mean, this is like right in the middle of what you would think would be Trump's sweet spot. And he could be, it could have been beating this drum for the past seven months. And has, there's just been absolute, complete and utter silence. And I think it's, I think it's a winning issue, uh, not just politically, but it would be good for the country to, uh, to really think through these issues about how we uh, uh, onshore our supply chains again, especially when it comes to critical uh, to critical manufactured products, and there's just been there's just been nothing. I think that really is uh, that's a political failure. Well, there seems to be widespread uh, consensus amongst most of the commentariat that uh, 
neither candidate won a, a, an absolute knockout blow, but there was a moment when uh, I thought Kamala Harris was definitely on the ropes, and that was on the issue of uh, the Supreme Court and whether or not President Biden would, would flood it with new appointees. Um, both candidates at different times didn't answer clear questions, but that really is a moment, uh, Ollie Wiseman, you've written about this in The Critic today, that really is a moment that the uh, Biden camp needs to, needs to clear up. Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, look, I think that it, the Biden, I'm, if you look at the polls and, and where I think the conversation's at, I feel increasingly persuaded by the strength of their position in the race, right? So that part of the task here is sort of stress testing it and seeing where the potential weaknesses might be. And that, to me, is, is one of them. Uh, they, Biden was asked a similar question um, last week, and he didn't give a, didn't give a clear answer. Um, Harris had, had, not, had no answer. It's a, it's a yes or no question, right? Um, or at least you could say it's not up to, you know, it's not up to, it's not up to the president and the vice president or something. Um, but um, no, I think that it's, I th and I think it's, the reason I think it's potentially very damaging is not just because it's kind of a, a progressive um, progressive goal that they would be sort of um, committing their support to. Um, but also if your entire case for the president, your presidential race is about um, your respect for norms and restoring the way in which American politics works and sort of respecting the constitution and, and the system as, as it exists and so on, and all the ways in which Trump has, has, has done the opposite, then if you start your sort of your, your, your own kind of political kind of vandalism like that, um, you know, where does that leave your broader argument about your, your opponent? So I had made this point in my uh, uh, piece for you guys, but, you know, it, to me, it was not, um, it was the evasiveness when asked a direct question about really an important issue that it was the most damaging there. I mean, Joe Biden last week, he was asked this question directly. He, he didn't sidestep it. He just, he straight up refused to answer. He said, I'm not going to answer the question. Uh, Kamala Harris, I think actually did worse. And Biden, I think Biden's response was bad, but, but Harris did worse. And she just, she evaded it. And she did it in a, in a really obvious way. That uh, is the sort of thing that when people uh, see politicians doing, it's kind of reminds them why they hate politicians in the first place. Um, you know, look, the, there is uh, there is legal power to change the size of the judiciary. You can make the argument, but they refuse to make it. Um, and if they want to do it, they should just say so and convince people, and they can get support for it or not. But to evade to evade an issue like that, I think is uh, it's just it's just really smarmy, and it it, it treats people, um, meaning voters, it treats them, I think, worse than uh, worse than they deserve. Well, this was the only vice presidential uh, televised debate of this campaign, but there will be a second and a third presidential uh, um, debate, something that was in doubt a few days ago. But now the nature of that second debate next week is, uh, is in question. Um, the suggestion that it would be the, a virtual debate is something that President Trump has refused to have anything to do with, but the idea that it might be postponed a little bit to suit his health is something that uh, uh, Joe Biden will, will not abide. Um, who's, who, in this shadow boxing, Who's boxing smart? I think I don't think we know yet. Um, I think the idea of a virtual debate is idiotic on its face. So I think Trump's right to, to not to do that. Um, I actually think that the debate format 
um, that, that we've been using for the past, whatever, 50 years, so years, I think that has outlived its usefulness too. So that needs to be rethought in general. That, that won't happen this year. Um, you know, what I, uh, what I have encouraged uh, publicly is, is that what maybe if they insist on going down this uh, virtual debate format, what Trump should do is just go a different direction and let, uh, let Biden do it. But on that same night, he should go and do a three-hour live interview with Joe Rogan. Well, right. Well, right now he's he's threatening a uh, a rally, right? I think is it in, instead of instead of virtual um, virtual conversation. But um, look, I think there's a good reason to not hold it in person on that day, which is that the president of the United States, as far as we know, is has a has a potentially deadly um, virus. Um, so there are good reasons not to all you know get together in a room. And I should say also, you know, this is a town hall format in theory. So there's you know people asking them questions and so on. Uh, look, I think that. As I understand it, Chris will correct me if I'm wrong, the, the commission can sort of dictate terms and then it's up to the candidates to accept their terms, right? So I think that the commission is actually going to be in a very tricky place over the next few days because they don't want to look um, partial. Um, and yet they, you know, even if, even if you took Trump out of this, this is a, this is, this is a very difficult issue. How, how, to, how to conduct an election when one of the candidates has a serious, um, um, potentially deadly virus, and how to do that in a safe and sensible way that still gives voters proper, uh, you know, competition between those two those two candidates is is, is not straightforward. So, so I certainly don't envy the envy the the commission. Chris, you've you've got the last word on this. Yeah, well, gosh, I, I've got a, I've got I can have about twenty different words on this because I think that the system is just basically um, broken. It's it's. Um, it's really interesting to see how the visuals of this play though. I mean, because Ollie's point is that, you know, Trump uh, theoretically could still be contagious then. I think that's right. Um, but on the other hand, this is somebody who seems to have made, uh, as you said, Graham, this Lazarus like uh, recovery. Uh, I was speaking with somebody yesterday who had spoken to the president who said that even for him, he was especially chipper. Um, and so you have the potential that the commission and Biden um, either don't have this or, or they do it without Trump or something because it's too dangerous. And yet Trump is in a stadium with 30,000 people and the visuals there are, I think, favor Trump. Um, I don't know. It's, a, it's, interesting. I, it's interesting to see how that'll play out. Well, how it will play out is something that uh, we'll be following in our next presidential podcast. But for now, Christopher Buskirk from American Greatness and Oliver Wiseman from The Critic, thank you both for your ringside observations. Thanks, Graham. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.